Oh, hello. Hello. Hi. Welcome to Hollywood Party. This is... Oh, oops. Excuse me. Pardon me. Oh, hi, honey. It's so good to see you. So this is a podcast where we explore famous figures from old Hollywood and decide if they would make it onto the guest list of our ideal Hollywood party. I'm your hostess, Lauren Seymour. to pinpoint what makes the perfect party, but it really has to do with a combination of people. I think if we get to know some of our potential guests, it will let us get a glimpse into what a party in the golden era of Hollywood was like. Now, if you want to visualize a Hollywood party, think of the Great Gatsby party on steroids, or the party at the opening of Auntie Mame, just a mix of all sorts of people. The parties thrown by actress Marion Davies were the stuff of legend. She would hold them at her ocean house in Santa Monica. If you've never seen this place, it was a massive colonial style home with 110 bedrooms, a pool, a tennis court, and the entire beach. There was one party where she had an antique carousel set up, but most of them were dress up parties, which I don't quite understand because these people were actors and dressed up for a living. And then they went to a party to dress up some more. They must have loved it. Sometimes she would also do a getaway party at her boyfriend's house, Hearst Castle. It sounds a lot bigger than her home, but there were only a measly 42 bedrooms at his place. And besides, Hearst was teetotal, so they were not as fun as hers. He only allowed his guests two drinks at dinner. Now, you don't need a millionaire boyfriend like Marion to throw a great party. Some of the most infamous parties were at the Garden of Allah. It was a hotel slash long-term residency on Sunset Boulevard, right across from Chateau Marmont. The booze might not have been top shelf there, but the parties went on for days. There are photos up on my Instagram, at Hollywood Party Podcast, as a reference guide. Most of these parties would have battling egos and dueling alcoholics, sometimes literally dueling. I know it's hard to describe what a perfect party is, but if we get to really know the guests of this party, we might get a glimpse into what we would be walking into. Since we're all just sitting in front of our TVs all day right now, in this episode, I want to explore one of the granddaddies of television as we know it, Desi Arnaz. I'm sure most people would think, why not start with Lucille Ball? It's so rare, even now, to have a woman be that hyper successful. You know what's also super rare? A Cuban immigrant becoming a business and entertainment giant in the 1950s. He was born into wealth and privilege, lost everything, and then became the head of the largest studio in the world. Now, I should probably preface Desi's story and possibly my entire podcast with a little note. Just because these actors couldn't curse or be nude in classic films doesn't mean I'm going to treat their real life stories like we're in the Hays Code. In reality, these people drank had sex before marriage, cheated, did drugs, smoked a myriad of narcotics, and most definitely drove drunk. They're flawed human beings, aren't we all? And besides, it really makes for a much better story. For someone whose persona is built on not speaking English so great, Desi's autobiography is so well written. 
the, the vocabulary is better than most people you speak with in modern times, but he comes through so clearly that you can hear him reading it to you. There was no Audible when this was published in 1976, so there are no recordings of him reading it, not even a chapter, but he comes through like no other autobiography I've ever read, and that's basically all I read. Let me give you a two-sentence example. In the beginning of his autobiography, Desi says, I was born in Santiago de Cuba on March 2nd, 1917. I had to start someplace. And like I said, Desi was pretty well off when he was born. His family owned three ranches, one for cattle, one for dairy, and the last one was for poultry, pork, and slaughtering the animals. Additionally, they had a vast summer house and lived in a mansion. In 1869, this is way before Desi, the Queen of Spain made his great-grandfather mayor of Santiago. She also gave his family large chunks of land in California, specifically Ventura County, Beverly Hills, and the Wilshire District in LA. So when you're driving around on Ventura Boulevard and Arnez Drive, you should definitely be thinking of Desi. To add to his historic pedigree, his paternal grandfather was the doctor assigned to Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders, and his maternal grandfather was the vice president of Bacardi Rum. Yeah, that Bacardi Rum. Now, what I love about Desi's autobiography is how totally honest he is about sex. Let's face it, that's why people read celebrity biographies. It's for the scandaloso. His grandfather had seven kids, and then had time to have a mistress who lived in a smaller house called the Casa Chica, and he had another seven or eight kids with her. I don't know how this guy had time. Since infidelity surrounded him during his youth, Desi said, Latin women understand and don't make a fuss. Right. He said at 12 years old, he tried to lose his virginity to a girl of a similar age in a boathouse dressing room. And like most boys and men, he wasn't paying attention to the small detail of the window in the room. His mother was watching the entire thing from their house. She was smart enough to send down their cook to pound on the door and break the whole thing up before it really got started. Desi jumped out of the window that he finally noticed and dove into the sea. The only thing his father ever said to him about the incident was, don't you ever embarrass your mother like that again. A few years later, one of his uncles took him to Casa Marina, a local whorehouse where he said the ladies treated him, quote, kindly, very nicely, very tenderly, and very expertly. Whatever the hell that means. As a teen in Cuba, he went to a very strict Jesuit school and got straight A's in English, but his math and science skills were not amazing, so he said. I should note that Desi's father was a doctor, the town's youngest ever mayor, and at this point, a congressman. So the bar was already set pretty high for his only son to follow. Apparently, Desi was planning on going to Notre Dame for college. He dreamed of playing football there, but one day in 1933, his entire life was flipped upside down. The afternoon of August 12, 1933, Desi was playing cards with a friend and something was off. He felt this need to go home. When he got there, the phone was ringing. His uncle was on the line and said the Bolsheviks were coming to arrest or kill them. He needed to get his mother and get out of the house now. As Desi listened to his uncle, he looked out of the window and saw a mob coming over the hill, and they were most definitely heading straight for him. His mother grabbed the only cash they had, about $300, and a revolver. One of their servants told them to go get in the car, 
So Desi and his mother rushed out, jumped in the car with their dogs, and the car wouldn't start. The servant had forgotten he'd taken the battery out that morning to work on it. So as they started to panic, a man from the opposite political party of Desi's father pulls up and tells them to get in his car. Why they trusted someone from the opposition, I don't know. As they drove away, Desi looked back and saw the mob destroying his home. Desi's mother summed up this time perfectly by saying Cuba turned into a barbaric orgy of killing and destruction. After Desi and his mother got away safely, they arrested Desi's father, burnt down his uncle's soap factory, and threw a bomb through his grandparents' window. For me, I think the worst part of all of this, worse than hearing about Desi seeing a man's head on a pike like it was Tudor England or something, was hearing that they killed every animal on Desi's family's ranch and left them to rot. People are just awful. We don't deserve animals. Years later, a wildfire threatened Desi's ranch in Chatsworth, California. His mom was with Desi and Lucy while they got things before having to evacuate. She told Lucy something she never forgot. All the pictures. Just take all of your pictures, your private and personal documents. Everything else can be replaced. I grew up in California, and that is definitely something we all have on our minds once fires became a season there. Eventually, his father was let out of jail because of habeas corpus, or as Desi says, quote, a legal term for either shit or get off the pot. I kind of think Desi Arnaz might have missed his calling doing cliff notes for law school textbooks. His dad moved to Miami and sent for him. And this is in 1934, so the Cuban population in Miami is not what it is now. When Desi arrived, his father told him he would not speak to him in Spanish because they needed to become fluent in English. Desi tried to argue with him by saying that he had an A in English, and his dad was smart enough to say, that's in Cuba, not here. So for a time, they lived in a warehouse together and tried selling imported bananas. Then they sold broken tiles that they cemented back together, which is basically like OG shabby chic, or as they call that look now, magnolia. Yeah, it's shabby chic, guys, come on. Desi also cleaned the crap out of canary cages for $15 a week. He gave the crap up literally and started playing guitar seven nights a week for $39. One night, Xavier Cugat sees Desi perform and invites him to audition for him. If you don't know Xavier Cugat, here's a little crash course on him. He was basically the guy who introduced America to Latin music. He also used to conduct his entire band holding a chihuahua, which is kind of adorable. This is what Desi said about his audition. My Cuban blood was flowing, my hips were revolving, my feet were kicking, my arms were waving. It would have made Elvis Presley look as if he was standing still. I sang the shit out of that song. Of course he got the job. But there's a catch. He had to wait one year to start because he was still in high school. How he concentrated on bullshit high school work when he had legit had a good job waiting for him, I don't know. Anyone else would have walked into their school, told their least favorite teacher to go eat a fat one, and gone to work in New York City. Desi's father, the doctor, did not want Desi to work as a musician. Color me shocked. He basically had to pitch the idea to his dad, saying that he would treat the experience like school, except he'd be learning the big band business from Hugot. He went to Manhattan with Hugie, and it was fantastic uh, as far as learning experiences go. But like most learning experiences when you're young, he barely got paid. Cougat was notoriously cheap, like to the point that Desi was still making jokes about that on late night talk shows in the 1970s. When he came back to Miami, Cougat allowed him to be billed as Desi Arnaz and the Xavier Cougat Orchestra and said he'd send him down a band once he found work. 
what stepped off the train was nothing short of a joke or an insult or maybe both. So a little fat Italian bass player, a Spanish drummer, and two Jewish guys, one on the piano and one on the sax. They were not a great band and they were fired the first night, except union rules stated that they had to play two weeks. During that time, Desi got really creative and he introduced the club goers to the conga. Yeah, Desi Arnaz made the conga line popular. He called it his dance of desperation because of his impending unemployment. The dance was such a gigantic hit that he and his band of super rando dudes stayed the entire three month season in Miami. After that, he moved to Manhattan and got a real band of his own, but their first job was in a German bar. Latin music and German food, what is going on in New York? Eventually, he moved to a club called La Conga and became good friends with the biggest celebutante of the decade, a girl named Brenda Fraser. He also became really good friends with a famed madam, Polly Adler. Polly really took a shine to Desi and had the men who needed escorts go to La Conga to give Desi business. It was also vice versa because there was a smoking hot redhead, have a type much, that Desi talked about being his favorite of Polly's girls. It doesn't seem that he had to pay very often because besides being super charming, Desi in his 20s is drop dead gorgeous. He was a beautiful man. In addition to that, he was dripping in charisma, super talented as a musician, singer, and dancer. I think because most of us know him as Ricky Ricardo in those oversized 1950s suits that didn't flatter anybody, we don't really think of him as sexy. And the women that flirted with him on I Love Lucy sometimes felt a little off. But please go to my Instagram and look at some of the photos of him. You will not regret it. La Conga was also the place that Rogers and Hart found Desi and put him in their play, Too Many Girls. And for a guy whose best friend is a madam at a whorehouse, this could not be a better title. Van Johnson was Desi's understudy in the play. Pale ass, red-haired Van Johnson, who doesn't have a Cuban accent. Who's picking their understudies? The tryouts in Boston were nothing short of a shit show. Desi had blood poisoning in his foot and had to be taken to and from the theater each night in an ambulance. Then when that cleared up, the doctor said, hey, you've got syphilis. And Desi started freaking out because he's kissing all these girls in the play and oh my God, is he giving syphilis to everyone? The doctor was wrong. It was the man in the room next door. Like, this guy's awful doctor. Opening night on Broadway was in October of 1939. Desi couldn't wait around for the reviews at Sardi's like everyone else because in addition to working on the Broadway play, he had to work at La Conga five nights a week. So surprise, surprise, the Sardi's crew ended up at La Conga and the play was a hit. Not like My Fair Lady or Hello Dolly kind of hit, but good enough. Now that Desi had his first big hit, well, wouldn't the conga line be his first big hit? Anyway, he also found his first love. In his book, he refers to her only as Freckles. And that drove me freaking crazy. He says that she was married to her dancing partner who discovered her. She apparently was the sweetest, most understanding person Desi had ever met because she looked the other way every time Desi took a his words, detour. He said the longest detour he ever took was with Betty Grable. So if you're already trying to figure out who the hell Freckles was, check Betty Grable off your list because he named her, but not Freckles. So Arheo buys the rights to the play and is gonna make it into a movie. And when Desi drove out to Hollywood, Freckles said she would follow him out there on a train and be there the following Saturday. Desi's first encounter with Lucille Ball was at the Arkeo Commissary on his first day in Hollywood. 
She was supposed to play the ingenue in Too Many Girls, but the day they met, she was filming a fight scene and was all tarted up with a big black eye painted on. Later that day, after washing all the black eye off, they remet and Desi took her dancing. Now it's Saturday, and he picked Freckles up from the train station. He took her to Eddie Bracken's beach house in Malibu for a little party he was having. Lucy was at the same party, and Desi said he never went back to Freckles after walking on the beach with Lucy that day. How romantic, right? Who cares? What the hell happened to Freckles, and who was she? So we're going to take our own little detour and figure out who the hell was Freckles and what became of her. She meant so much to Desi that over 30 years later, he would not disclose her name in his book. And it's not like he wasn't dishing the dirt. He just told us he had an affair with Betty Grable. That's a pretty big name. For all things Lucy, I go to Shelly Zimmerman. She runs the most comprehensive Lucy Instagram account called Loves B-Way, L-U-V-S-B-W-A-Y. She told me that Freckles was a woman named Renee DeMarco. She was married to her dancing partner, Tony, who found her when she was 16. Super gross. There are some accounts that she and Desi were actually engaged, which makes him ghosting her all the more shitty. She ended up becoming Judy Garland's dance tutor during her early years. She and her last husband, who was a publicity agent named Paul Coates, were apparently friends with Lucy and Desi. Seriously? Honey, can we get you some new friends? I mean, this guy treated you like dirt. I don't know if they would have used the term self-respect back then, but I know she was definitely being a sucker. Anyways, she passed away in 2000 in Bend, Oregon. So that is our story of Freckles. So Desi makes the movie, continues seeing Lucy, the movie wraps, and he goes back to New York. She comes out to visit as much as possible while she does publicity for the different movies she's in for RKO. Both of them said they were extremely jealous of each other. Why both? I think we can all agree Lucy was right to think Desi was more than likely getting it wherever and whenever he wanted to at this point in his life. But why was Desi jealous of her? Neither one of them addressed that in their respective autobiographies, so it makes you kind of wonder about Lucy. Lucy and Desi eloped to Connecticut on November 30th, 1940, right after she gave an interview about how happy she was being a bachelorette and never wanted to be married. Desi finished his engagement at the Roxy in New York, and then they moved to Los Angeles. Well, LA adjacent. They bought a five-acre ranchito with a pool and 350 orange trees in Chatsworth. Making it seem like you had a normal life was the thing to do at the time for celebrities, and I really do not understand it. If I had finally made it in Hollywood, I would not need to shovel horse shit to feel like a regular person. You're not a regular person. Wasn't that the point of becoming a star in the first place? Anyways, the ranch was christened Desilu. Now let's not knock them for not being original while naming their massive studio and production company the same name. They're about to literally invent the way we watch TV now, so they get a pass. Desi's career at Arkea was nothing exciting, but eventually he scored a meeting with Louis B. Mayer, who was the head of MGM. I know LB and pretty much every single studio head were super weird, but the audition LB put Desi through was really odd in my opinion. He had Lana Turner come in, told Desi to kiss her. Then she left, Judy Garland came in, and the same thing happened. Then he said Desi is like a racehorse because he looks average until he actually starts running, meaning working. I don't think LB really had a great grasp of who was attractive and who wasn't, because he told Judy Garland she was hideous as well, and she was not. 
Anyways, he offered Desi a job, and Desi convinced him to, one, give him more money, and two, let him work for the USO until LB had a script ready for him, all while getting paid. So in 1943, Desi's all signed up to work for the Air Force, he's super stoked, and the weekend before getting shipped off, he tears his one good knee playing baseball. After he heals, he goes into the Army Infantry, and then really jacks his knee up while proving he could finish some super long hike. So he's classified as limited service. That is when he becomes an instructor for illiterates. Am I the only one who thinks that this is not the best way to make these dudes literate? This is totally an SNL sketch. Desi Arnaz with his thick ass accent teaching some guys from the sticks how to read. He was even on SNL to promote this book, so I'm surprised no one really thought of this because the sketch is writing itself in my opinion. The next year, in 1944, Lucy filed for divorce from Desi because she was sick of his shit. Actually, the phrase she used was a clash of temperaments. Back then, divorces were interlocutory, meaning they had a one-year waiting period before it was officially terminated. Luckily for everyone, especially Desi, they reunited that same night. At this time, Lucy was working, doing a lot of radio shows. And in 1950, she talked to CBS about transferring her radio show to TV, but wanted to use Desi as the husband, not the blonde dude they had been using on the radio show. CBS says, it doesn't make sense. Why would a red-blooded and red-haired American girl be married to a Latin man? Probably because he's hot, dude. It's a pretty good reason. Even Desi doesn't want to rock the boat because Lucy's career is doing well and he's making $100,000 a year. So he doesn't really want to jeopardize all of that. Please take note that this is the first and last time Desi will be conservative in his business and money decisions. He does agree to try out an act with Lucy, and if the audiences like it, he's all in. In his autobiography, Desi describes the entire number that they do. It will eventually become the pilot for I Love Lucy. I'm not sure if he thinks people don't know that number, or if KCAL 9 was not constantly showing Lucy reruns when this book was published, but he really didn't need to waste the paper. You've probably seen the episode, and if you haven't, you probably still have, but get thee to YouTube and just look it up. Anywho, they take it on the road and surprise, surprise, no one gives a damn that a white lady is married to a Cuban dude because it's hilarious. Lucy has one more picture to do in her contract with Columbia, and she begs to get loaned out to be in Cecil B. DeMille's film, The Greatest Show on Earth. And what a shocker, she has a problem with Harry Cohen, because who didn't honestly? He told her she had to do a movie for him. Desi told her, just make whatever they give you and just get your contract over with. She does a B-minus movie that had a six-day shoot and she got $85,000 for it. When she was finished, she called Harry Cohen and told him she was done and that she was pregnant. He's pissed. I don't really know why. And then she had to call and tell DeMille that she couldn't do his movie either. Apparently, Desi ran into DeMille at a party later on and Cecil said, you're the only man who has ever screwed his wife, Cecil B. DeMille, Paramount Pictures, and Harry Cohen all at the same time. The first version of I Love Lucy was written to be true to life, meaning that Lucy was the star instead of just a housewife. As you know, that got changed. I really wish we got to see the glamorous version of the show. Like, how cool would that have been? Within 48 hours of sending the show around, they had a sponsor, Philip Morris. And the first season was 39 episodes. What the hell, modern television, with your 12 to 22 episodes per season? It's freaking lazy. 
Desi and Lucy both took a thousand dollar an episode pay cut to stay in LA and film the show instead of doing it live from New York. Thank God they did that because every other show then was filmed on Kinescope and it looked like ass. Additionally, Desi got CBS to agree to giving them 50% profit and let Desi Lou own all of the shows. A few years later, Desi sold all the shows back to CBS for $4.5 million. There's footage of their daughter Lucy Arnaz interviewing some of the crew of the show in the 1990s, and she is not pleased about them letting her dad sell the shows, because imagine all that money she would have now. I did the math, and the inflation is about $39 million. Something else that changed in the script was the addition of the Mertzes. William Frawley, Fred, called Desi about the job. They met at Nicodell's. It's a restaurant on Melrose down near Paramount slash RKO slash Hollywood Forever. It's not there anymore because LA tears down everything good and turns it to crap. Desi told Bill, look, you're on a three strikes you're out deal. Frawley had a really bad reputation of being a drunk and Desi needed to set some boundaries. Desi said Bill Frawley never missed one single day of work and Fred was the numero uno character people asked about whenever fans stopped him. That was a fact that really pissed off Vivian Vance, who played Ethel. She felt like Bill wasn't an actor and was just phoning it in. I wish I could phone it in that well. Vivian was signed to the show without even meeting Lucy because Desi was so certain about her. And by now we should all know if Desi thinks it's good, just roll with it. Now I need to take a minute and talk about something. Desi is credited with inventing the sitcom format, multi-camera technique, the rerun, and the four-headed monster, which was a device that lets you look at all three different camera angles while editing, along with the audio track. Desi seems to be kind of similar to Walt Disney. They both were excellent at getting the right people together to invent or create things that are now the standard in their industries. Desi got Carl Freund, this Academy Award-winning genius, to figure out the lighting and photography, and Danny Kahn built the four-headed monster. So it was all like a collaboration. Also, a really fun rerun fact, reruns had different sponsors. Lysol paid $30,000 per rerun of I Love Lucy. They also strategically ran the reruns Sunday afternoons to get kids hooked on the show. It's pretty smart. The first show of I Love Lucy was seen in 10 million homes. They didn't win any Emmys that season, but Red Skelton, who won two, told the Academy that they had given this to the wrong redhead. He wasn't wrong. During their summer break, they had to turn down a movie at Warner Brothers, $57,000 for a two-week stint in New York City and Boston, because Lucy was mentally and physically exhausted. Probably because she just filmed 39 episodes and just had a flippin' baby. Which, oopsies, she got pregnant again. So they had to start the new season earlier than scheduled. It's the 1950s and the crew is freaking out because how dare anyone talk about pregnancy? They all think they're gonna lose their sponsor, so Desi writes a lovely heartfelt letter to Alfred E. Lyons, the chairman of Philip Morris, explaining the situation. Lyons writes an internal memo that Desi doesn't know about for years. And it says, don't fuck around with the Cuban. I think we can all agree with that statement. So when the very first episode airs of her being pregnant, 30,000 viewers write in to wish her well and 27 assholes write in to voice disapproval of seeing a pregnant woman on TV. The birth of Little Ricky gave them unlimited merchandising options. They called him the $50 million baby. Variety nicknamed them Desi Loot and thought they went a little overboard with I Love Lucy potty seats. 
I would like to direct Variety to the attention of all the frozen merchandise that it makes me want to stab my eyeballs out. In 1953, Lucy and Desi are on top of the world. Everybody adores them and they finally have the career they've dreamed of. That is, until Walter Winchell, shitster extraordinaire, does a blind item about a top TV comedian being a communist. He was basically the TMZ of his day, and I mean that with all of the bad connotations attached to it. Of course, he doesn't bother to fact check with Lucy. He just thought, hey, why don't I just fuck over her entire career for the hell of it? Desi calls in the big guns and gets Howard Strickling, head of publicity at MGM, to come help them. The fact is that Lucy's grandpa was a communist. He had her sign up in 1936, but the card had expired in 1939, 14 years ago. Lucy knew as much about being a communist as Joe Exotic knows about being a libertarian. Many of their so-called friends were ghosting them. The blacklist was a career killer, and people were scared of this witch hunt, but Lou Costello, of Abbott and Costello, came over and just sat in her garden all day. He said he thought she needed a friend, and that is the most adorable thing I've ever read. So just a little recap. From the time Desi fled Cuba, to Broadway was six years. From Broadway to number one sitcom was 12 years. How can anyone compete with that timeline? The only way to go is down, right? If you're a normal knuckle-dragging plebeian, sure. But this is Desi freaking Arnaz. He's got one more level to go before he Hindenburgs this beast. So let's do it. At this point in his career, Desi has a conversation with Lucy. He says that they can end the show at the top Seinfeld style, live off $150,000 a year without touching the capital, and just work when they want, or expand Desi Lu to become even bigger than MGM. Lucy said she didn't want to quit, and pretty much traded her marriage for her career, which by this point in the story, he, we, everybody should know all she wants to do is work. Or, hear me out, did he give her the option to choose, because he was the one who really wanted to get huge, but didn't want to make the call himself. I don't know, I'm just spitballing here. 1955 is the first time they didn't win any Emmys and Philip Morris cancels sponsorship and Desi's alcoholism starts to kick in because he has to run Desi Lou, play Ricky, produce the show, keep track of commercial tie-ins with manufacturers, keep an eye on his own personal investments, help create, develop, and sell other pilots for Desi Lou as well. This dude's got a lot going on. Oh yeah, and he's married and he has two kids and a gambling problem. I don't know how he even had time to drink. His health got so bad that his doctor, the same doctor as David Oselznik, who really messed himself up doing Gone with the Wind, told Desi he had diverticulitis. That is when your intestinal tract gets so inflamed that you need to kind of rest to calm it down. But that definitely didn't happen, and eventually Desi had to have surgery and wore a coloscopy bag for over a year. Dude, you thought your job was stressful. So instead of resting, Desi hears that RKO is up for sale. The Gower lot behind Hollywood Forever and the Culver City lot, formerly Selznick Pictures. The asking price was $6.5 million, and that included all the equipment, sets, props, scripts, films, down to the office pencils. But the real estate alone was totally worth it because that added up to 65 acres of land in LA. Desi asked him to hold the deal for 24 hours before putting it on the market because he knew he'd be competing with major Hollywood assholes who'd want the land. 
By assholes, I mean Harry Cohen and Jules Stein from MCA. He was the guy who ends up buying Universal Studios. Desi called Bank of America and asked for $2 million, and they literally just said, to whom do we send the check out to? Desi asked Paley at CBS if they wanted in on the deal, and he said no, but I'll rent the space from you when I need it. The bank says they'll give Desi up to $6.35 million, but Desi wanted a better deal than what he was getting, so he started negotiating. This negotiation is going on while he's filming an episode of I Love Lucy with Tallulah Bankhead, and it's 9pm and this deal needs to be closed by midnight. He calls on his break during filming and said he would give them $6.15 million, and he got Lucy had no idea Desi was even doing this. He had told her years ago that they needed to be as big as MGM, but they were now the biggest studio in the world. In 1957, the biggest studio in the world was run not by an old white dude, but by a Cuban immigrant. Why the hell does no one talk about that? I don't think any of us really think of Desi as a studio head, much less the biggest one. Additionally, when people with less clout than him would call him, they wouldn't say, hey Desi. They would say, hey Spick. These are his words, not mine. Are you kidding me? I would hang the phone up on that racist asshole. Could you imagine calling L.B. Mayer or one of the Warner Brothers and calling them some kind of racist term? <laughs> that would not happen. You'd be blackballed for life. Desi didn't want to get into studio politics. He would just hire the best people and let them do their thing and increase their salaries two to three times a year. If anything went wrong, he would just say, well, amigo, I guess we blew it. He sounds like the best boss ever. He built a nursery for writer Madeline Pugh so she could have her baby with her when she worked. Bosses don't even do that now, much less in the 1950s. In 1959, Desi bought the rights to The Untouchables. He got Van Johnson to play Elliot Ness, but at the very last minute, like about to start the next day last minute, he quits because his wife told him he needed more money to do a TV show. So at 2 a.m., Desi tracks down Robert Stack at Chasen's. He sent in the script, Robert liked it, and agreed to do the show. The wardrobe person is at Robert's house at 6 a.m. to fit him, and they start shooting at 9 a.m. It was a critical success, but mobsters would call Desi and threaten to blow his brains out or blow up a studio if they didn't stop showing Italians as bad people. Even Sinatra flipped out on Desi about portraying Italians as violent people. I don't know, Italians, maybe stop threatening to murder people and you wouldn't have a bad reputation. That's just some constructive criticism. By 1959, Desi wants to sell the studio. And I don't blame him. He's got a lot of work on his plate. He lived in the guest house at home because he drank so much by this point. In September, he was booked by Hollywood police on a common drunk complaint. That could have been a hell of a lot worse because a Desi Lou exec had to come pull him out of a whorehouse on Vista Street. Apparently, police had it staked out all night and they were ready to go arrest somebody. So luckily, an exec had been tipped off. Lucy was with Robert Osborne when she saw the morning edition of the LA Herald Examiner with a headline about Desi being arrested. As you can imagine, she was livid. I told you guys this is going to go downhill. I'm sorry. In November, Desi tells Lucy he wants a divorce. She really lays into him, saying it would be better for everyone if he was dead. He goes into his dressing room to grab something and turns to see Lucy with a dueling pistol pointed at his face. She pulled the trigger. He calmly lit his cigarette on its flame and then showed her what he went to get. It was a piece of paper with a man's name and number from New York. Lucy apparently blushed and went silent. 
Was she cheating on Desi? I don't know. The day after they finished the last Lucy Desi comedy hour, their divorce was announced in the papers. Two years later, Lucy buys Desi out of the company for $3 million. The next year, Desi married Edie Hirsch. He had met her at Santa Anita Racetrack when she was a cigarette girl. He said he couldn't get her in the sack until 25 years later. That is a version of the story. Here's another. Edie's husband knew about them and had them followed by two private eyes, who were also followed by two spies. Edie eventually left her very rich husband for Desi because he was charming and he said he'd take care of her. But Desi really liked to gamble, so Edie was not taken care of financially the way she was with her previous husband. Desi pretty much stayed retired. He lived in Del Mar the rest of his life, and he went through rehab very, very late in life, mostly because Desi Jr., whose vice was drugs, inspired him to get sober as well. Edie passed away in 1985 from cancer, and Lucy insisted Desi move into her guest house on Roxbury Drive for a while so she could keep an eye on him. But in March of 1986, Desi was diagnosed with lung cancer. He underwent chemo and radiation treatments, and during that time he refused to see friends, and even Lucy, because he looked so frail and thin. The treatments, unfortunately, did not work. Lucy Arnaz stayed with him for the last weeks of his life, and her mom came to visit Desi once. They watched old VHS tapes of I Love Lucy, reminisced, praised each other, and laughed. Weeks later, he started to really decline. Lucy called to speak with him, and all she said over and over, with a different intonation each time, was, I love you. Lucy Arnaz was holding the phone up for him while this was going on, and realized that very date was her parents' wedding anniversary. Desi passed away 48 hours later. His obituary in the New York Times said, quote, he was an important figure in the history of television. Look, Desi Arnaz was a founding father of television, and throughout his life and even now, it seems no one will give him the credit that he earned. He was extremely humble and gave all the credit to Lucy and his workers. I will even argue that Lucy would not be Lucy without Desi. Don't believe me? Would you rather watch I Love Lucy or The Lucy Show Without Desi? Exactly. When I look at his life, I think it's the perfect candidate to be a great musical on Broadway. I'm looking at you, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Some of the songs are already written for you, Lin. And there's no shortage of hot Latin men who could play Desi. I just said he's a founding father of television, similar to Hamilton being a founding father. They're both known for cheating, except Desi was actually hot. And this isn't even all of his story. I'm leaving out some really interesting parts because they won't fit in. So if you're listening, Lynn, this autobiography is a lot shorter to read than Hamilton. Give it a try. Besides him not getting the credit he deserves, I'm interested in why he had to self-destruct. He seems to have always gotten what he wanted. He was an only child. He got plenty of attention from both parents. He got women. He had success with his band, television, and business. What happened? I can't even answer that. Lucy Arnaz has wondered the same thing during some of her interviews. Had he not hopped into the bottle, what would the entertainment world look like now? The question I can answer is, do we want to party with Desi? He can play some music for us. He can get a killer conga line going. He's super hot, but when he drinks, he can be a little sketchy boots. He's definitely on the list, guys, come on. Getting a little sloppy drunk is something I think we can all work with. I'll be keeping a running guest list on my blog, and be sure to let me know if you agree. And let me know who you'd like me to explore in future episodes. 
If you haven't had your fill of Desi after this, head over to my blog where I have a list of all the books and videos I've used in my research. I will say his autobiography is out of print, and it's super expensive if you do find it, but it is available on Audible. If you sign up, you get a free book, so you should totally do that because what else are we all doing right now? Join the party next week. I'll be talking about a funny lady. Not Lucille Ball. You'll have to come back and find out who. Thanks for listening to Hollywood Party. This episode was written, narrated, produced, edited, everything by me. My logo was designed by Kelly Mann, and my theme music is by Berkeley Gedney. For more information about this episode, head over to hollywoodpartypodcast.com or follow us on Instagram. If you like the show, tell every single person you know. Like and subscribe on Apple Podcast or Spotify or Anchor or however you found us. Thanks and see you next week. That's that noisy girl music.